Good morning. I am uh, really, I've been really excited about the opportunity to come up here and teach, and I've known about it for a while, and this will actually be my third time teaching here at Eagle, and I was feeling pretty good about my sermon and um, just like ready to do it, and then Eric called me into his office on Thursday, and I was like, hey, I want to talk to you for a minute, and I was like, great, good. Um, <laughs> sorry, he's asking me about my message and how I'm feeling, and I was like, I feel good, I feel great about it, I, things are, we're in a good place, and he's like, okay, but you need to talk about yourself during this message. And I was like, okay. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't have anything to say about myself. He's like, people are getting to know you. They want to hear about your life. They want to hear about your stories. Like, this is an opportunity for people to get to know you, so you need to be sure to talk about yourself. And so we talked about that for a long time. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. And in my mind, I'm like, I have nothing to say about myself. <laughs> I am not that interesting. Um, but this, the message that I'm giving this morning has become very personal to me, and I'm excited to share it with you. So we're going to be in the book of Philippians, um, chapter 3 specifically, but uh, before we jump in, there are a few things we need to know about Philippians. So the church in Philippi was actually the first church in Europe. It was the first church on European soil. So thank goodness for the church in Philippi, because that's how the gospel started spreading west and got into Europe and was spread to not just the Jews, the Gentiles also. And you can find the story of how the church in Philippi got started in Acts 16. So in your notes, make a note, like make a note to yourself in the margin, Acts 16, go back and read that. Because it's a cool story. Paul meets a, a group of ladies who are down by the river, they're gathered together and it says they're God-fearers. They, they, they love God, but they only know so much. And out of that, Paul was able to share the message of the gospel, and they were started a church. And then Paul hung out in Philippi for a while, and some things happened. He casts a demon out of a little girl, and people didn't like that, and so he was thrown in jail. But then the jailer got saved, so that was great. And so the church in Philippi got started, and Paul has this really great relationship with this church. So the, the letter to the Philippians is a friendly letter. He loves them. They love him. And this was not always the case for Paul. When you get into Corinthians, there's tension there. Paul had tension with that church because of things going on. But Philippians is, is based in love, encouragement, and instruction. And we get a lot of favorite verses from this book. So 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 121, for me to die, to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we've encouraged our students to memorize that for camp, and they get a discount if they do, but it talks about Jesus who did not count equality with God, something to hold on to, but was willing to take the form of a man and come to earth and was obedient to the point of death. It's a great passage. 4.6 tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. 4.13 is a favorite for people who don't even go to church. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff in Philippians. But then we get overarching themes of joy and unity and servanthood and humility and suffering. 
you know, the things that you generally write to your friends about. So I've been spending a lot of time in Philippians because there's something there that I just can't get past. There's something there that I've been wrestling with for a long time, and I get to share that with you this morning. So we're going to settle in chapter 3. Um, if you have a bulletin, the whole passage is in your bulletin. We're looking at verses 1 through 11, and it'll be up on the screen. But I've titled this message, The Answer is Always Jesus. And part of it is because of that Sunday school trope, that old baguette. Like, if you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. You're probably going to be right. And as a little pun, a little forward-looking ahead, no surprise, the answer to every one of the points in your bulletin is going to be Jesus. It's easy, but we're going to get there. So let's read the passage first, because there's a lot to grab a hold on here. And I want to take it all in in one, in one sitting. And the thing about Paul is that, like, even, like, verses 1 through 11 is 11 verses. It's like three sentences. Paul, like, when he writes, his sentences go on and on and on. So a lot of ideas are in here. So stay tracking with me. Let's start at verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I count, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. A lot of good stuff there. But before we go any further, I want to pray. So Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that we can trust it is true that you are present and active in our lives, and that there are things you want to speak to us and reveal to us. So we ask that you would open our hearts, soften our hearts and minds, and let us receive with open hands the things that you want to give. And it's in your awesome name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to do is we got to talk about what this passage means. Before I can talk about myself, before we can make any application, we have to understand what's going on here because the passage can never mean what it never meant, right? We can't just go in and be like, well, I think it means this. No. There's a reason why Paul was writing what he was writing, and we need to get at that before we can be like, oh, okay, this is how, this is how it makes sense in my life. So verse 1, before he jumps into anything else, after writing about suffering, after writing about humility, after writing about sickness and persecution. And side note, Paul is writing this letter from jail. He's in prison while he's writing this. 
So not the greatest setting. The first thing he tells them in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. The first thing he tells them before anything else is to have joy. He said, it's a command, rejoice. He's already talked about heavy things, and now he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. And we don't often equate suffering with joy. We do often equate joy with happiness, and that's a misunderstanding on our part. And that's a disservice to ourselves. Before we continue with anything, we need to know what joy really is. And this quote is in your bulletin. If you can throw it up on the slides, please. So it says, in Philippians, one learns that joy is not so much a feeling as it is a settled state of mind characterized by peace. An attitude that views life and all of its ups and downs with equanimity. You can continue. It is a confident way of looking at life that is rooted in faith in the living Lord. For Paul, joy is an understanding of existence that makes it possible for one to accept both elation and depression, to accept the cre with creative submission events that bring either delight or dismay, because joy, true joy, allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events. So right off the bat, Paul is saying, Jesus is the only source of true joy. Immediately, after talking about all the things that he's talked about, before he goes on to anything else, he's saying, look, Jesus is your source of true joy. Rejoice in the Lord. It's an understanding of existence that makes it possible to understand life in all of its conditions, that whatever happens, we understand that Jesus is over all things. Jesus is over all things. That's joy. That's the peace that passes all understanding because the perspective is not whether or not I'm happy, like do I feel good in this moment. The perspective is Christ is seated on the throne for eternity. He is sovereign over all things. I can continue because he is my source of joy. He is my source of peace. And that's what Paul is telling them. So right off the bat, because he's about to dive into something serious. So right off the bat, he's like, be filled with joy in the Lord. Because life is hard. Difficult things come. And you got to know where your joy is to make it through. So continuing with verse 1, he tells them, Rejoice in the Lord, but he says, To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. So obviously he's about to talk about things that they've talked about before. As you do with your friends. It's not just like one and done topics. You revisit things. You encourage one another. You talk about things multiple times. And it's never like, oh, do we have to have this conversation again? Not with people you love. It's a delight to talk to them. And that's what he wants to do. So verses 2 and 3, he says, he just jumps right in. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So first and foremost, what Paul is tackling here is a message of a question of salvation. So when he started the church in Philippi, preaching the message of Jesus, that Jesus is the one who saves us, another group came in after the fact, and they're called Judaizers, and these were people who preached a message, a message of Jesus and. 
So their thing was like, Jesus is good, but you need this also. And they're coming from a Jewish background, and so their thing was circumcision. So circumcision, would, they said, Jesus is fine, he can save you, but in order to be identified as part of the people of God, you need to continue with this practice also. So Paul gets news of this because they're preaching this to Gentiles who are brand new to this faith. They're brand new to the people of God. So they don't know, is it both and? Is Jesus enough? And Paul is coming in and saying, guys, do not listen to these people. They don't know the truth. They don't know the truth. They're saying Jesus is good, but you really have to follow this practice to be in. And he's saying that's not the case. Be on the watch for these people. And he says that, and he, he, he changes it on them. And he calls them dogs, actually. He says, watch out for these dogs. Because dogs are actually how Jews would refer to Gentiles before all of this. Because Gentiles were far from God. They were unclean. They were, like, dirt. They just didn't want to associate. And Paul flips it around on them. And he says, these are the dogs. These are the people who don't understand the truth. They don't know what it's really like to be part of the people of God because they're putting their confidence in the flesh. And he says, we are the circumcision. Which is an odd word to say, to identify as. But this circumcision is rooted in Genesis 17. So with Abraham became the father of the faith, essentially because he had faith that the Lord would do what he said. So it was faith that made Abraham part of the people of God, the father of the people of God. But circumcision was instituted as a, as a point of identity, as identification. It's very similar to how we view baptism today. So we would say baptism is not what saves you. It's not what makes you part of the people of God. But it is a sign or a symbol of the things that are going on in your life. And it is a sign and symbol to the community that you are part of the community. That's why we do it together in big groups. Because we're identifying with one another. We're identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's not that act of going under the water and coming back up that saves you. It's Jesus. And Paul is telling them that we are the circumcision because it's about the heart. It has always been about the heart. And several times in the Old Testament, the Lord will say to the people of Israel, circumcise your hearts. I don't care about the physical anymore. I want your heart to be changed. I want your heart to know the truth. And in the Old Testament, it's, it gets further and further away from the heart. And it becomes more and more about doing Am I following the law? Am I following the sacrificial system? Am I doing all of the right things? And obviously that wasn't enough because Jesus had to come and step in for us. We were, it was never, circumcision was never meant to be what made people part of, the, part of the kingdom of God. It was always Jesus. But this church is wrestling with it and it's a question of salvation. And Paul comes in and says, look, we are the circumcision. He turns the tables. He says, we understand something that they don't. That we don't put confidence in the flesh. The flesh, the physical things we do can only get us so far. He says, we put our confidence in something else. And we worship by the spirit. And we boast in Jesus Christ. That is our confidence. No physical act can do for me what Jesus has done for me. So when Paul is talking about the flesh, it's a very New Testament word. We don't really talk that way anymore. So when we're talking about the flesh, we're talking about the physical world, the physical self. 
a human foundation. And he's saying our physical self, the things we do, can only take us so far. And they don't get that. But we get that. That's what he's saying. We get that because we worship by the Spirit and we glory in Jesus Christ. We understand that Jesus is the only source of true confidence. And here when he's talking about confidence, he's, saying, it's, he's talking about a guarantee of faith, a guarantee of salvation. Jesus is our source, and we put our faith and trust in him. So Paul is saying, like, don't listen to these people. you got to stay true to what you know, and that's the fact that everything is Jesus. Everything is Jesus. But he doesn't just stop there. In verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh any, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul understands what it is to put confidence in the flesh. He's saying here, if we're basing physical self as the source for our salvation and for being a part of the people of God, I've got it covered. And then he goes through his, his accomplishments. Circumcised on the eighth day, as a good Hebrew was. He was the right ethnicity. He had the right tribal association. The tribe of Benjamin is the tribe that the first king of Israel ever came out of. So that like notches up the tribe a little bit. And he's like, I was from that tribe. He was Hebrew, born and bred. He had the right education, the correct passions. He knew the right things, and he did them. But it only got him so far. Something happened to Paul that changed his message and changed his mind. And that we see that happen in the book of Acts. And we're not going to go over the whole story. But something happened with Paul. He, talk, he, just, he glosses over it briefly. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And we see this in Acts 7 through 9. So Acts 7, we see the first martyr ever. It's Stephen. He gets stoned to death because of his faith in Christ. And that's the first time we see Paul show up. But his name wasn't Paul. It was Saul. So Saul is at this scene. We don't know if he was an active participant in the stoning. What we do know is that people who did participate in the stoning put their coats at his feet. In some translations, it says he held their coats. So he was present, and it also says he approved of it. When you get into chapter 8, it talks about how that Saul, Saul was ravaging the church, going into people's houses, arresting men and women, throwing them in jail, uh, breathing threats and murder. Like Paul was a murderer. That was his zeal for the law. That was his zeal for his confidence in the flesh. But something happened. And that was Jesus. And you see this story. Make a note in your margin. This is Acts 9, 1 through 19. You see the, the conversion of Saul. And he literally meets Jesus on the road one day. Jesus shows up and says, what are you doing? And Saul says, I don't, I don't know you. And Jesus says, I'm, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. He doesn't say, you're persecuting my church. He says, you're persecuting me. And in that moment, when Paul is met with the Lord, he's struck with blindness. And he continues on to the city, and he's blind for three days. 
And Jesus appears to a believer in the city. His name is Ananias. And he says, hey, Ananias, I need you to go and do something for me. And Ananias is like, yeah, okay. He's like, there's a guy named Saul who's currently blind. I need you to go and pray over him so that he can see again. Can you imagine Ananias in that moment? Like, uh, I know, Saul, I, uh, he don't know you. It's scary. And we just got done with the book of Jonah. This would have been a perfect opportunity for Ananias to be like, no, I'm out. Like, I'm not interested in getting murdered today, so I'm not going to do that. But he, he's obedient to the Lord. And he goes and he prays for Saul. And Saul sees again and has a total change of heart. Because he has seen the Lord and understands that Jesus is the filter that changes everything. It changes everything. And he had all of those former things, but then he met Jesus. So verse 7 is where it starts to get real. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's confidence in the flesh was real. He had tangible gains, tangible reputation, a good job, a good background, probably a cushy life. He thought that he had legitimate grounds for boasting before the Lord. So that when he finished his life and was face to face with God at the end of all things, he thought he could be like, I had this, check. Right ethnicity, check. Right religion, check. Right job, check. And he thought that was enough with the Lord. I think a lot of us think that we have enough to stand before the Lord. That we put our confidence in ourselves and we're like, hey, you know, I'm a good person at the end of all things when I'm standing face to face with the Lord. I'm going to be all right. Uh, here's a little hint. You're not going to be all right. Because we need Jesus. And Paul gets that. So Paul's confidence changes. And the decisive difference for Paul is Jesus Christ. He realized the tangible things he put his confidence in were nothing when faced with Jesus. When faced with the reality of the risen Lord. In verse, continuing with verse 8 and 9, he doubles down. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he doubles down. He counts it as loss. But not only that, he says, I've suffered the loss and I consider everything else that I used to know, all the things that I used to have that I thought were gains, he calls them rubbish. And in the Greek, this is actually a vulgar term. It's like saying they were excrement or filth, rotting food. In other words, he's saying what I had is disgusting compared to knowing the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is not saying... And I don't want to get hung up on this, and I don't want you guys to get hung up on this. Paul is not saying that those things in and of themselves were bad. His lifestyle was not bad. Well, I mean the persecution of the church, that's not great. But like being Hebrew, coming from a certain tribe, being a Pharisee, loving the law, those things in and of themselves are not bad. What he's saying is that his confidence in those things 
equates to garbage because of Jesus. Because Jesus is the lens that changes everything. But this is, con so we have confidence in Jesus, but confidence leading to what? And we find that out in verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul has already talked about the incomparable value of knowing Jesus. He says this in verse 8. But here he says that his goal is to know Jesus fully. He wants to know Jesus fully. His desire is to understand and experience the life-giving power of God. So in your Bibles, circle that no. So in verse 10, that I may know, circle that, highlight it, I don't care. And in the margin next to it, I want you to write understand and experience because that's what no means. When Paul is talking about, I want to know Jesus. He's saying, I want to understand and experience Jesus. Every day, there's always more to know. Understanding and experiencing these things in everyday life. That I may know the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So by drawing attention to the power of the resurrection, it's not just the idea of the resurrection. What Paul is targeting here is the might and power of God that was present in the resurrection. He's, and then he, he, by saying that first, I want to understand the might and power that was present at the resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Nobody likes talking about suffering. Nobody does. We're not talking about major suffering here, though he's writing this from prison. He's talking about the daily afflictions of life, the troubles, the problems, the heartache of life. He's saying, I want to know and understand the power of the resurrection in my daily life. That's the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ, is knowing those things in our daily lives. This unmatchable and incomprehensible power that was present at that one event that changed everything for the rest of history, I want to know that in my everyday life. So that as I suffer, as things happen, that's the source of my hope. That's the source of my confidence. That's the thing that I'm pushing toward. I want to live in and understand that so that I can bear the things that come until the day I die. In verse 11, he says that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. Paul doesn't doubt where he's going. He's not saying, I, I'm going to do what I can, what I have to do so that I can be, at the end of all things, I get to be part of that resurrection from the dead. He, he knows. His confidence is Jesus. He knows what's coming. He just doesn't know how it's going to unfold. Life is a mystery. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. So what Paul is saying is that come what may, I want to know Jesus more and more. I want the power of his resurrection to be present in my daily life, and I want that knowledge and experience to push me forward until my final day, until the final day. What Paul understands is that Jesus is the only source of true life. 
and that life that carries on with the filter of joy and is based in the confidence and knowledge of knowing Jesus. That's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So now that we know that, so what? So what? This is what I've been wrestling with <laughs> for weeks, probably. Because I can't get past it. I just keep thinking there's something there that I can't get at. And then when Eric, when I met with Eric on Thursday, and he was like, you got to talk about yourself. And I was like, I have nothing to say. The Lord immediate was like, immediately was like, yes, you do. Yes, you do. So before I dive in to, it all starts with a, a story I heard about my six-year-old nephew this week. So all of this stuff has become like more real this week. My sister called me early in the week and she's like, I have a funny story for you. And I'm like, great. So my youngest nephew is six. His name is Caleb, but we call him Bear. And if you knew him, you would understand why his name is Bear. This kid, his love language is wrestling. He's always ready for a fight. Everybody's a, a villain. He's a good guy. Like, his life is a superhero movie. He's a cool kid. But also, as the youngest of three, he's entering a phase of being a bit of a whiner. So at six years old, the whining is pretty persistent. But he's early in the week. He was being very clingy to my sister one morning. And she's like, buddy, I can't. I can't. I have to go get ready. Everybody's getting ready. And his dad was like, Caleb, you got to go find your socks, buddy. Put your socks on because we're getting ready to go. And Caleb, it was too much. It was too much for him. And he just like broke down and he said, why does it feel like I have to do everything myself? <laughs> so my sister is telling me this story and I'm like, oh man, I get that feeling. And she's like, well, you're an adult. You do have to do everything yourself. He's six years old. He can find his own socks. But it's that, feel, that feeling of like, um, I have to do everything myself. And as soon as she said that, well, you do do everything yourself. I was like, yeah, I do. I am self-sufficient. I take care of myself. I'm on my own, so if, it doesn't get, if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. And this week, as I've been going through this, I started to realize, oh, I've got a lot of confidence and self. And I imagine I'm not the only one. I rely on myself a lot. And that in and of itself is not bad. You have to do things to get things done. That's not bad. I'm a doer. I achieve things. I get stuff done. But I have a lot of confidence in that. And when my confidence is in that, I get weary really fast, or I get resentful, or I break down. And then I come to the Lord in crisis mode. So the lesson um, that I have been learning for the past eight months, it started in October, was the Lord very clearly saying to me, you do not ask me for help. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I do. I, I ask you for help all the time. When I'm in crisis mode, when the world is falling apart, when I have been chipped away at for so long that I can no longer function like a person, that's when I ask the Lord for help. 
And it became a recurring theme in October. And honestly, it's been an ongoing theme for months, recurring in my journal. It's sort of embarrassing to go back. Ask me for help. Ask me for help. Engage me in your life. Ask me for help. And I haven't until I hit that crisis mode. Because I get into the mode of operating. I'm operating. I'm doing things. I'm okay until I'm not okay. I even had a dream from the Lord, the first time this has ever happened, from the Lord about the Holy Spirit showing up in my life and calling, calling me out, saying, I have things you need and you're not asking for it. That's been the recurring theme. You're not asking me. You're not engaging me in your life. And we're going to keep having this conversation until you do. And guys, that's where I am with this passage. That's why I can't get past mostly verses 8 and 10. Because Paul got something that we don't get. Paul understood that Jesus, yes, he's the source of our salvation. He's also the source of our life, of our life. What would happen if we, as a body, started living like the power and might that was present at the resurrection was present in our daily lives? What would that look like? We talk about the resurrection, we love the resurrection, but only on Easter. What Paul gets, and I understand that Paul is not the most relatable. I get that. He had a serious conversion and a serious change of heart. But Paul's life, what he learns, what he grasps as true, does not have to be the exception. It can be the rule. Because what the Lord is saying to me, and I suspect also to a lot of you, is that I was not done with the life of Paul. I was not done with the book of Acts. I was not done with the New Testament church. The power and might of the resurrection is still present and active, and it's there for you to take. Ask for it. That's where I am. Is that where you, is that where you are? Because he gives us these things freely, and he says it's here, ask me for it. And you know how it starts? Jesus, help me. That's how it starts. In every moment of every day, you can engage him in your life. And it doesn't have to be some kind of high and lofty prayer. And it doesn't have to be in some kind of crisis mode. Jesus, help me with whatever. And he's there. He's ready. He's just ready. Tap him in and see what he will do. Because the more you do that, the more you get to know him. And the more you come to realize that everything else I put my confidence in is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ every day. If we say everyday life with Jesus, what if we take that to the next level and say everyday life with Jesus and the power and might of the resurrection. Because that's Jesus. That's what Jesus wants to do.
more together every day with the power of the resurrection? What would happen in our lives? What would happen in this church? What would happen in this community if we were people who trusted the fact that the Lord wanted to give us what he has? What would happen? And guys, I understand that that starts with me. It starts with us individually, us engaging the Lord. But I want to live in and understand the power and might of the resurrection in my life so that I can bear the things that come. And regardless of what happens, I have joy and I have confidence in the fact that Jesus is the answer. It might be, it might be trite, but it's true that Jesus is the answer. The worship team is going to come back up. We actually get to do a, a time of communion together, which I think is an appropriate response. What a great way to celebrate the fact that Jesus is the answer by remembering his death and resurrection, but also proclaiming the fact that, that power and might is still available to us. And all we have to do is ask. And he doesn't care if, it, if it's just Jesus, help me. He doesn't care. Because he wants to. He wants to give you what he has. And he wants to give it freely. We're also going to be singing a new song um, that's all about if creation can recognize the power and might of God, then so will I. But I want to take it to the next level and say that if Paul, who was a murderer, can understand the, the power and might of the resurrection, can live in light of that, then so can I. And so can you. And so we, we all can. But you have to start asking. Ask for it. Test him in that. See his faithfulness play itself out. Because it's there to grab a hold of. He's there to do something powerful and faithful for you. You just have to ask. You're still probably going to have to find your own socks. <laughs> but you never know how he's going to show up in your life. So as they start to, to play, I want you to feel free to get up and move to the sides to participate in communion. Families, I'm glad your kids are up here because how awesome for you as parents to have the opportunity to demonstrate asking for help, but also to teach your children that this power and might is there for them too. How awesome is that? Let's pray. Lord, you're faithful and you're good. And we're grateful to you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the truth that you are our source of joy, you are our source of confidence, and you are our source of life that the power of your name is real and is the answer. But Jesus, let that be the lens that changes everything in our lives. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the things you're doing in our hearts. 
Holy Spirit, we ask that you will do the things that only you can do. And thank you for the truth of the resurrection that we get to celebrate in that and trust in that and know that you will come back for us because you do what you say you will do. Thank you. And it's in your awesome name we pray. Amen. As we leave, I wanted to send you out with this because it's a familiar verse, but maybe it takes on new meaning now. In Philippians 4, Paul says, beginning in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. In verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So may the Jesus who made himself real to Paul make himself real to you, to us all. That in whatever situation you're in, come what may, you know the answer to every question is Jesus. He is your joy. He is your confidence. He is with you every day. We love you. Go in peace.